This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to The Humane Podcast. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and you are listening to Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to the show. Welcome back to the Humane Podcast listeners. Today, our guest speaker is Mirav Yurlivker, who is the founder and CEO of Data Society. She's a co-founder of a movement in Washington, D.C. to accelerate the data economy and the next wave of the workforce. Mirav, thanks for joining us on Humane. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we all know that we are now many weeks into what has been the unprecedented year of the century, known as the COVID-19 <laughs> scenarios that we're experiencing. We're only one-fifth of the way through, too. One-fifth of the way through, but it feels like a lifetime. And one thing that we know that is so certain is that data has never been as important as it is today. Now, to set the stage for our episode, love for our listeners to learn a little bit about who you are and what you do, and then let's dive into the data economy. Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm the CEO and uh, founder of Data Society, and we are a data science training and consulting firm. And we work with government agencies as well as large organizations and corporate clients to help them understand their data to solve problems. So whether that's through customizing training programs to their use cases to train up their workforce to understand data, or whether that's building customized software and algorithms to help them make predictions about trends that they're seeing, you know, we are there to provide solutions because we know that data is only useful when it's being analyzed and when it's being looked at. And we help companies and agencies do that. 
Now, it's incredible because both of us here on the show, we're both involved in the education industry as well as, you know, products and services, and everything's been disrupted as a result of COVID. (laughs) Uh, But one of the industries that although it's been disrupted, we've been seeing a lot of movement in is the education, the digital transformation industry. Um, I've talked about with a few of our other hosts and uh, guests on Humane that although there's been some disruption with Galvanize, we We've, you know, come out ahead. We've, you know, mm-hmm. transformed, moved a lot into this live online model. What are some of the things that you've seen as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I think what's been truly amazing is just the way that our team has handled the transition from more in-person trainings to more live streaming. So a really big frankly, round of applause to them for working with our clients who've also been incredibly flexible and understanding. And what we're seeing is a lot more interest for organizations that have offices across the world for these live streaming trainings that we're offering. So just to give you an example, one of our clients is the uh, Inter-American Development Bank, and they're here in Washington, D.C. So typically we do in-person trainings for them here, although we also deliver trainings all over the country. But since we switched to live streaming, we have a lot of students from South America who are joining us now. And it's been really wonderful to see that additional impact that that's had and the different points of view that they're bringing to the table and also seeing that type of collaboration between colleagues who don't normally work together. So we're seeing a lot of amazing advantages to switching to this model. And that's just one of them. And it's incredible to see this live streaming model. I've been on a few investor pitches this week where we're seeing different startups teaching Spanish over live streaming. And even for many of the high school students who may be listening in or who are wanting to accelerate careers in data science or software engineering, there's one startup founder I've been following great attention with. It's actually the founder of Fiveable, and they've been working on helping AP students get fives on their exams here in the United States and globally. And they have seen tens of thousands of people studying live with instructors on the platform as these AP exams are literally on the way of going live any day. I remember when I was in high school, this was some of the most stressful times. But it's also incredible to see that we're starting to see more accessible and more equitable results that are possible as a result of the new modality of live online education. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, seeing how this is really going to shift the way that people think about education. And there are, of course, a lot of considerations. You know, we used to do full day trainings, but obviously it's very difficult for someone to sit in front of a screen and pay attention for eight hours of a day or seven hours of a day. So now we're chunking it into smaller portions over longer periods of time to make sure that we're maximizing that learning and that retention. So all of these little shifts and adjustments that we're making to make sure that we keep that interactivity there, keep people engaged, has been a really great addition to the content that we have. Now, of course, learning is something that we always want to do as we're lifelong learners. But again, the phrase of the year is COVID-19. And data is very important today. I think it goes without saying that individuals like yourself and myself, a lot of our news and attention is being spent on COVID. We're seeing dashboards and analytics and reports out there every day about how are we flattening the curve? Are we Mm -hmm. alone together? Where are the trends and diagnoses going with things like 
contact tracing and test and trace and track and trace and all these different initiatives. But there's so much going on. And can you, as someone who has worked a lot with NGOs and nonprofits and institutions that are trying to understand more about this, can you share with us some insights you've been discovering in the industry? Yeah. So, you know, I think what you're saying is exactly right. Data is the only way that we're going to get through this successfully and make sure that we prevent it in the future. So it's really important for us to understand that data that we're collecting about this pandemic is truly for the benefit of the entire population. And what I mean by that is when we look at the comparison between, let's say, South Korea and the United States, who both discovered their first COVID patients around the same time, um, South Korea really went very heavy into the data and they instituted contact tracing and they instituted diagnostic tests, you know, at a very high level. And they were able to contain it because they could really quarantine people at a more specific level. Now, it's important to state that, of course, South Korea is a much smaller country than the United States, and it's much more isolated when you think about the borders that are around it. So they did have those advantages. But when we think about the level of testing that we need here in the United States, we're still working up to that as we're seeing. And you know, what I'll say is that while there's a lot of politics that seems to be involved in this pandemic, it's important to understand that data is apolitical and it's important to use it in order to inform our decisions. So when we don't have data that we're collecting on it, we're not sure what our real numbers are, right? Like I know that New York City, where you live, had to adjust their number of deaths higher in the middle of April because there were so many they weren't accounting for. These are people that died in their homes. They didn't even make it to the hospital. And we're not sure who those family member, you know, who those individuals infected, where's that contact tracing. So not knowing that can have a a huge impact. And just to give you an example, I think it's estimated that about 20% of the people who are have been infected with COVID are responsible for something like 90, 95% of cases. So we really are looking at such a contagious disease. And because it's asymptomatic, it's so, so important for us to be able to isolate those individuals as quickly as possible. And the only way we can do that is, is with that the data that we're talking about. So it's really been fascinating to see the level of research that's been done on this. And I think we're going to see a lot of new insights and new protocols that will come out of it. I think it's absolutely critical that we do proper isolation, containment, quarantine processes, because another very surprising statistic that came out of New York City from Governor Cuomo was that almost 66% of hospitalizations that we're seeing today in the five boroughs are people who are not essential workers and people who are not out there on the streets. Interesting. It's that perhaps something is going on with cleanliness and sterilization and and that these impacts, as you're mentioning, maybe someone's going out to the grocery store and that essential worker at the grocery store is asymptomatic and everyone's getting this condition thinking that they're safe. So, you know, my hope is that we're able to set up better track and trace processes over time. And I think you hit it best at the start of the episode, Amirav, which is that apolitical data is what we should be thinking about. Thinking about unbiased data. If we can step away from all the stereotypes, we can think about how ethics and standards can help everyone together 
advance as an entire society so we can come out ahead from COVID-19. You know, of course, we're seeing all the unemployment reports and a lot of statistics out here that COVID's impacted every part of the economy. But the key to understand is that data can help us identify trends and signals to then determine what does reopening look like? What does protection of different vulnerable populations look like? But I think one of the keys there that I'd love to dive deeper into is the difference between data processed from data scientists versus epidemiologists. It's often assumed that, you know, data scientists, we have this magic secret sauce. You know, we uh, whip (laughs) our fingers, we yell a special spell, and magically we're at 99% accuracy. But is that the truth here? I mean, I left my magic wand in the closet. um, So unfortunately, I'm I'm not going to pull it out right now. I do think there is a lot of that misconception going around. And in fact, we did a study last year of data scientists and asked them what their biggest pain points were in their workforce. And what we found is that they had a lot of difficulty communicating insights to their managers and to their staff outside of their data science teams, because there's not a common data vocabulary we like to call. And we actually train executives as well as general staff because we want to be able to bridge that gap and facilitate that type of collaboration and communication. You know, another misconception that a lot of people have is that data science is magic, right? You push a button and all of a sudden you know exactly what's going on. And I'm sure you could also speak to how much time data collection and data cleaning actually takes, right? Usually it's 80% of any data project And a lot of the data scientists that we surveyed said that there's a lot of frustration on the part of their bosses because they don't understand exactly how time-consuming it is to collect that amount of data and then to collect it accurately and make sure that it's clean and ready for processing. One thing that I will say is a key factor to any successful data analytics project is that industry knowledge. And one important factor that epidemiologists have that maybe not all data scientists have is a really deep understanding about the spreads of disease, how diseases are transmitted, what are the key factors and influences in society. And by having that knowledge, and then by building on top of that with an additional data science layer, you're really merging the best of both worlds because they will be able to pinpoint exactly what they're looking for and they'll be able to interpret the results in an industry specific way. So I think it's important to collaborate, but also understand, of course, that they're not the same and they're not interchangeable. Yeah, I think that's 100% spot on because the epidemiologists know so much more about medical and healthcare data, whether it's looking at lungs or understanding different symptoms and how they impact each other, than a data scientist who takes a neural network and says, let's find a trend, right? (laughs) But I think another thing that you, you shared that was super interesting is about the data preparation, collection, and refinement stage. And we talk a lot about design thinking in both software engineering and data science. But one of the areas that a lot of Americans do not know about is if Apple and Google want to set up this fantastic idea of contact and trace where you install these apps, and we've been seeing some from MIT and now Apple and Google, well, It doesn't work unless we get a critical mass of people to actually install the apps with their telecommunication providers and their devices. You know, if one million people, less than a third of a percent of the population do it, how helpful is that going to really be? 
I mean, I think it could be helpful in terms of extrapolating and modeling some of that in the network effects, right? So there are ways where we can do that to simulate what that could look like on a larger population. I will say, and this is just from my personal standpoint about data privacy, there are some very valid concerns that have come up, right? People do not want to be tracked by a company without getting certain assurances about how their data will be used. And so it's really important that any app that is released and is supposed to be used by a majority of people in the population it is very important for us to understand what the data privacy policy is, how our data will be used. Is it going to be kept on servers for years and years and years? Will it be discarded after 30 days? Will it be appropriately anonymized? Because, you know, there are people that, you know, we do have a right to privacy and, and there's a lot of information that's already collected on us as is. So I think that aspect needs to be addressed. And I'm sure that leads to some hesitation by people who want to participate in the contact tracing program, but potentially are unsure about what that will lead to in the future in terms of their own privacy. Yeah, I mean, some of the hesitancies I can see there is from a new show that's been on air the last couple of weeks. For anyone who's been Netflixing and chilling, there's, of course, always Hulu and chill and Amazon Prime and chill. <laughs> and there's been this show, Uploads, which is all about this future world where you're living and you have no spoilers here at all, but this digital avatar presence or digital twin, let's call it. And what's super interesting is they have this scene where someone puts on privacy mode, but then it's not really a privacy mode. So, right. you know, I think that's what we think a lot about here today. And you should definitely check out the show if you're a listener here. They're short episodes, but they're so futuristic. It's very much about where the world could be. But let's ground down into reality where we are today. I mean, I know at Data Society, you're working on some phenomenal projects and you mm -hmm. have uh, some new initiatives and new partnership as well that you wanted to announce today. So let's hear what you've been up to. Absolutely. Um, so Data Society, of course, we are focused on helping people. And that's usually helping people with their careers, helping organizations operate more effectively. But obviously, when COVID hit, we saw that this was going to be a massive issue and we wanted to figure out what the best way would be for us to be able to contribute. And I had an experience recently, I mean, now it's a little while back, where I went into a grocery store and I could only find about half of the products that I was searching for. And I realized that, you know, I'm sure you've experienced this as well, there's no way to know what's going to be at the grocery store until you get there. And right now, on-demand delivery services, of course, they are pricier than usual, and it also can take several days. So there's a lot of different implications as to why I wanted to go to the grocery store by myself. And I thought, well, what if we could connect with data inventories from grocery stores and then build an app to be able to share that information with shoppers so that they can check the supplies before they go. And that way they'll only have to make one trip because the other concern is that the more trips you make outside, the more exposure you have to COVID. So our aim is to reduce that so you only have to go out one time to get the essential products that you need. And what we found out very quickly is that groceries had their hands full already. And a lot of them don't have up-to-date inventory APIs, for example, that we could tap into. So we ended up partnering with another local Washington, D.C. company called R-Streets. And they've built an app called R-Street Supplies, which helps people find out what's in stock at a grocery store near them. And it's a crowdsourcing app for now. So just as you correctly noted earlier with contact tracing, it's only useful when people are reporting what's in stock. 
And you can go and you can see, okay, if I want to go to the grocery store, you know, what's been reported to be in stock. And that way I know where to go. So right now we are using their data to do some descriptive statistics, and then we'll be going on to some predictive analytics if when we get enough data to do so. So we're really excited to be able to help people understand, okay, what are the trends? When is this most likely to run out? If the store close to you doesn't have the supplies that you need, are there other stores within a one mile radius that do have the products that you need? Can we recommend that to you? Um, So we're really excited to partner with them and bring in our data analytics expertise to help support their application. I think this is such a thrilling idea because as someone who's a New Yorker, I host weekly dinner parties with a lot of colleagues and everyone tells me this store is out of chicken, this store is out of flour, this store is out of toilet paper. And the only way that people discover what's real is actually by asking your friends, you know, oh, I I went this week to Trader Joe's, they had it, or I went to this specialty store on this corner and this avenue but you no longer can call the stores. You can't even go on the websites often. So I think this is a fantastic solution that you're working on to find out, is there the toilet paper and is there the goods? Exactly. Well, thinking of solutions, this is one solution talking about COVID for good and how we can use data to help empower supply chains, which I think is one of the biggest industries that we've seen a lot of disruption, but also a lot of opportunity to digitally transform during the past year. I think there's a lot more that's happening beyond the supply chains, of course, the educational tech industry, where we both have our hearts near and dear, as well as the healthcare industry. I wanted to talk a little about the educational industry. We have, for many of our listeners who are listening live or on the recording, here we are, you know, in May, and the monthly jobs report for unemployment recently came out, with a number is at least, you know, 20 plus million in April, another five to 10 million in May. And what was so interesting is... When I was reading the report, it was saying something that about 80% of these workers, which is so shocking, I think, and surprising the statistic that about 80% of them today have not actually been laid off. They've been furloughed, which is a phrase that many Americans don't even know what it means. Like, what is furloughed? Has that even happened in (sighs) modern history? Like, what does that mean? Can you share some of your thoughts on furloughed workers, the ed tech industry, and what opportunity that can present to many of us? Yeah, so furloughed workers are workers that are still technically employed by companies but are not receiving paychecks. And what's really unique in this situation is previously when employees were furloughed, they were not eligible for unemployment insurance. But because many, many companies are anticipating this to be a short crunch as opposed to a long-lasting effect, they don't want to lose some of their employees by letting them go too soon. So they're furloughing them and, you know, in the hopes to bring them back, assuming that the economy can go in the direction that we want it to. And the government has now stated, hey, anybody who has been furloughed is eligible for unemployment insurance. And what's really good as well about furloughing is they still have access to their health insurance, which is critical, especially at this time. But we're seeing a lot of people who are kind of sitting at home, quarantining and figuring out, well, what do I do now? Now, what's interesting, I read another statistic showing that about 77% of furloughed workers anticipate going back to work. And I hope that that is true. But we are also anticipating, I know Airbnb and Uber, I think, just said they are laying off about 10 
15% of their workforce? And what do we do with the individuals who are now need to think about another career transition? And one of the longer term initiatives that are that my company is working on is helping prepare those individuals to re-enter the workforce with very highly prized data analytics skills. So working through the Department of Labor, for example, or through local governments with job force training, workforce training programs that can help revitalize individuals and, again, bring that industry knowledge that they already have and, you know, have have taken years to learn and then pair it with that data analytics skill set to create something completely new and helps them become more agile in this environment. So that's absolutely something that we're anticipating and preparing for now so that we can, again, support these individuals as they transition. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I think that's so important. And if you're anyone listening to the show who has either been laid off or furloughed, this is literally the best opportunity to learn new skills and to digitally transform. And of course, it may not be the first thing on your mind because, of course, you're thinking about, you know, bills and your livelihood and your family. And I want to encourage everyone who's listening to see how you can start making that pathway to digital transformation, whether that's working with an organization like Data Society where they operate or galvanize at our campuses remote live online as well. I think it's incredible that we've been seeing some statistics from the government that of the most recent CARES Act package, this was about $300 billion that was passed, about 1% of that, or almost 300 million American dollars, was allocated to workforce initiatives. That means the cities like New York City, San Francisco, Washington, D.C. And, you know, of course, that's a trickle-down effect, means different areas get different funding, but that's to help both employers retain their workers through maybe furloughed analyst programs and for consumers like yourselves who are listening to reach out to your local small business administration or your local training workforce centers to see what can you learn to continue accelerating your career path? Exactly. And I want to reiterate on a point that you mentioned, David, which is not to feel pressure to immediately dive in and try to 
to do training eight hours a day is an incredibly stressful period for everyone. And so it's really important to take care of your mental health first and make sure that you're feeling all right, you're doing what you need to do to stay healthy. Because I know there's a lot of expectations right now, like, oh, I'm home. There's so many things that I can do. And I think it's important to note Sometimes it's okay to, as you said, Netflix and chill or Amazon Prime and chill, you know, go for a walk, spend time with family and find ways to take care of your mental health. Because I think, again, that's an issue that we are going to see much more information about moving forward. And it's one that we uh, at Data Society are mindful of as well. I think one of the keys that you just hit on so well, Marav, is that we need to think about mental health, physical health, and all health in general. And one of the best things you can do during COVID-19 is setting up consistent patterns in your life or consistent habits. You know, when you would go to the office, you had a routine and that routine kept you very good, whether that's, you know, on your way to work, on the way home from work or at your living place. But Mm -hmm. now a lot of people, we can't go to gyms. We don't have the opportunity to, you know, go to parks and that's transforming life into a digital only society. So it's so important that when you're remote, you know, you're able to call a friend or, you know, do a remote yoga class, do a remote fitness class. I mean, I've picked up the Insanity and P90X Beachbody workouts. Nice. Those are intense. So intense. And I haven't picked them up since the early 2010s, right? So it's been a long time going to gyms and in-person experiences. But I have been consistent with it. I've been doing it now for almost six weeks every day. Wow. So it's definitely... Um, Are you noticing t- a difference? Well, I'll tell you, you know, when you go to college, you think of the freshman 15, you put on 15 pounds. I might be a COVID negative 15 if I keep up with this. And wow. I, I hope that for everyone, you know, and I, I think it's possible, you know, and uh, by the next time some of you see me, I might even have a different hair color going that far to try new things out. <laughs> so I encourage people, you know, for your mental health, try out things, you know, be willing to be creative, because now is that right time. And whether that's just giving you the space to get into the creative arts and and cook or whatever you need to do. One of the best things that I heard when I was watching the season finale of Westworld, there was this great ad before no spoilers about Westworld. This is just a plug there for the futuristic thing. But it's that there was this ad from HBO that said, it's okay not to be okay. Like right now, it's okay not to be okay and to acknowledge that and to talk to your friends and family about that. It's so important for mental health. Yeah, and that's, um, I think, a really important point as well. It's really okay to not be okay. We're, you know, you can be sad, you can cry, you can get angry. It's important to experience those feelings and express them in a, in a healthy way. And, you know, we're expressing feelings. We're getting very emotional with each other here on air. But beyond that, it's also important to express what work looks like, because now in this time, whether you're one of those 30 million Americans or more that have been impacted by layoffs or furloughs, you might be considering what does the future of work look like for myself? Or if you're a founder or an executive, what does the future work look like for my company or organization? And I want us to dive a little bit deeper into both of those topics so we can see whether some of the predictions, trends that Marav and myself were thinking about. Let's start on the individual. I think that's, again, very important, thinking about each and every person. We've talked about these workforce programs that we think will be up and coming throughout the entire Mm -hmm. United States over the next couple of years. 
what are some of the predictions that you might be seeing around jobs or industry shifts that you're seeing some early signs that you would encourage people to get on that bandwagon? Well, I think one of the first signs is that real estate, commercial real estate, is going to shift dramatically over the next few years. We've already heard from some very large companies that um, they're not planning on their workforce coming back into the office through the summer, some even until 2021. And because they're not seeing a drop in, in productivity, now there's a lot of questions asking, well, how can we use those dollars better? Does it make sense to have offices? I do think, speaking for myself and speaking to my team as well, we miss being in an office. We enjoy having that type of casual communication that comes out of it. And I think it's very difficult to know what we're missing out on when we're not in the office. So even though the levels of productivity might be the same, there's a lot of intangibles that are very hard to measure that encourage innovation and collaboration that really only occurs in an office space. But I do think there's going to be a lot more work from home jobs moving forward. And I also think there's going to be a a big shift towards data literacy. And what I mean by that is an understanding of how to ask the right questions of data, understanding what the, the terminology means, what the potential means, and feeling comfortable to manipulate data, visualize data to a certain extent. And the reason why I think that is because as we're seeing, it's becoming more important to leverage data on a day-to-day basis. And this pandemic has really accelerated that. And we're seeing a lot of companies and organizations that we're speaking to who are now thinking through what it would take to train up their workforce in even that base level. So when we're thinking about additional job opportunities, again, there are uh, a lot of areas that are now going to be opening up with a focus on data analytics. We're seeing healthcare. I think there's going to be a lot of uh, insurance, health insurance companies that will be expanding. Zoom obviously is doing quite well. So I think we're going to see a boom of that type of live streaming technology. I had a really great conversation um, with a friend of mine yesterday who was talking about how AR, not VR, um, but AR augmented reality is going to become more ingrained in our lifestyles because it's like Pokemon Go, right? It kind of fit in a lot more easy, easily than, than having a VR headset. So we're going to see a trend, I think, towards that and towards um, robots delivering our food. Again, that's something that's already happening in, in test trials across the U.S. And so we're going to see some little robots that are running around on sidewalks deliver with our pizzas inside and, and stuff like that. So I think we're going to see that type of shift. And we're going to see a lot more jobs in that type of automated, like automated behavior. I love the scenarios and the simulations that you just explained here, Marav, because AR and VR definitely is having a coming of age moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we talk back to the new Amazon blockbuster show upload. Again, no spoilers here, but there's a lot of AR and VR in the show. And the use cases are so practical. They are things that once you watch them in the show, you could say, oh, yeah, we don't know exactly the timeline. Is that next year? Is that in five or 10 years? But once it gets there, wow, these are so practical. 
I want this in my life. So I definitely think we can be moving more towards this augmented and virtual experiences. Absolutely as well, the healthcare industry is going to go through a tremendous acceleration of digital transformation and growth, especially with service. You know, my sister has actually worked a lot in the service industry, predominantly with insurance companies and is now, you know, embarking on a new journey as well with a healthcare company, one of the largest out there, and they are going Going through tremendous growth at this time. And I think it's not just for this time. I think as populations age, as we move into infrastructure mm-hmm. where health becomes ever more important to track and trace, it's an industry I see no signs of slowing down. You know, beyond thinking of, as you've shared, those industries, including healthcare, I think as someone who who looks at products and startups every week, the industries that I see accelerating beyond healthcare, beyond education, include D2C, which means direct to consumer. So any mm-hmm. products that are, you know, you go on Amazon or online and you buy this product so you can use it at your home or your work from home area, I think that's going to accelerate. So that could be wearables, that could be, um, you know, a home hair kit to get hair coloring, that could be a home shaving kit, that could be anything in that space, I think is going to accelerate. I think any products that do enable work from home, just like you shared, you see that trend into mid 2020, maybe even mid late 2021, 2022, who knows where it's going to go. But I mean, everyone's going to need maybe two monitors at their houses and they're going to need all these light kits and green screens. I mean, whole industries are going to accelerate to build these fantastic work from home experiences accelerated by companies and their innovation departments. So I think we're going to see a lot there as well. I'm most excited about direct to consumer because I think Mm -hmm. that's um, something that startups have always been trying to accelerate. We've seen it over the years with even traditional products like Casper and Brooklinen, but now we're going to see it more with other tech products. Yeah, and I'll just add on on there. I think a huge shift is going to be conferences. That's not something we address specifically, but I'm sure you've seen. There were many conferences we're planning on attending this year. Obviously, they got canceled. And now the question is, who's going to be the big player in the space for virtual conferences? And what will that look like? Because a big advantage is not only being able to travel to a different city, but also meeting other individuals in that industry. And whoever can capture that market first, I think is going to see quite a bit of growth because what we're seeing is that any big events, concerts, conferences, family gatherings, those will not be back to normal, I think, before mid-2021 at the earliest. And what is the next year going to look like for those types of events? Yeah, I had the opportunity to attend the New York Tech Meetup, which normally is in person with hundreds of people. In fact, it's the largest meetup in the world. Sometimes there's even two to 5,000 people for their annual event. And they just did an online event using some new platforms. I think they're all really interesting. The technology is still very beta. I think a lot of companies are accelerating these remote conferences. But um, I think you're right. That's going to be a very exciting space to help with collaboration networking and so forth. I think beyond that with conferencing as well, we're going to see like, what does a remote experience look like? We hear about Zoom fatigue, people getting tired. So (laughs) is there going to be new mental health tech out there to help people recover, whether those are traditional tech products like Calm and Headspace or other new wearables or 
injectables or who knows what those products look like. But I think that's going to be ever more important. We've seen the acceleration of live streaming, as you've shared about, Marav, at the start of today's show, not just in education, but with streaming games like Fortnite and, of course, you know, other ones like Apex Legends and all these, these new games out there where people are having competitions online live. I mean, we've seen even how Magnus Carlsen, you know, the grandmaster mm-hmm. in chess today, um, has partnered with uh, the chess tournaments to do live online AI, you know, supervised chess tournaments to make sure no one's cheating, but then they get money and prizes. Even now, the AP exams are going online. GMAT's going online. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're seeing how it's all happening. So we could be having, I suspect, a coming of age for digital transformation as a whole. Absolutely. And tying that all in together, I mean, when we think about education and digital transformation, uh, both of us were, you know, in the industry around product and education. But one of the questions I'm always asked by someone new into tech and digital transformation is how do I get started? You know, am I as an individual contributor, the decision maker, if I'm a mid-level manager, if I'm the C-suite executive, you know, where does that happen for an organization to make the shift? If today they're saying, you know what, we got to make some decisions, but where does it start? That's a great question. And that's one that we help a lot of our clients answer. You know, the first thing I'll say is that it's becoming more imperative now more than ever for companies to make that shift to become more data informed. I think the way that companies are behaving now is really going to inform their trajectory over the next three, four, five years. And if you're not starting to plan for this data economy that we're in, It will be like competing in a race when you're in a rowboat and your competitors are in motorboats. You know, you'll get there eventually, maybe, but you're probably going to spring a lot of leaks and you're definitely not going to be ahead of that pack. So the question is how to transform from that rowboat and, and get that motorboat right. And a lot of that has to do with the ability for an organization to be agile and to empower its workforce to think independently, to ask the right questions, and and to be able to solve challenges effectively. So as somebody who might be a manager, a director in the C-suite, it always starts from the top. It's so important to have a data champion in any organization who can really provide that mandate to their employees and set that culture and say, hey, this is something we're investing in. If you come to me with a recommendation, you need to show me the data behind it. You need to be able to prove that you've done your research. So it's not just a gut feeling, but it's also proven by the trends that you're seeing, the statistics that you're seeing. And we love uh, training up our executives and our directors because when we empower them with the right language, with the knowledge of the tools that are out there, with the understanding of how to hire and how to build a data science team, they get very excited. And we see that starting from that top, all of a sudden they want to talk to their data scientists. They want to provide the resources to get new tools and to provide training programs. And so starting at that level, training up your executives and your managers, and then training up a general staff, you know, even a one-day workshop of why is data important? How can we use it? How can you as an individual contribute to that? It can help people understand why you don't want to have you know, a hundred Excel spreadsheets that live on your computer alone that don't have any references to anything else, right? Um, So being able to think through how you want to collect data effectively and then taking a subset of those individuals and helping them go to the next level and get those data analysis skills so that they can 
find answers to the questions that everybody else is asking. And when you're looking at that type of a collaborative environment, that also enables, by the way, the data science team to focus on what they love doing, which is building complex algorithms and solving those difficult problems, not necessarily cleaning data. I think you're going to see a huge shift in the way that that a company and organization operates. I mean, if we just look at the data, you know, organizations that are more data informed, that translates to a difference of about three to five percent in terms of their bottom line, in terms of increased revenue, which is huge when you're talking about tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars every year. So I think we're going to see a lot of companies that are going to take that initiative now are really going to thrive once this pandemic dies down. And you can tell I'm very excited about it because I really am passionate about transforming the way that an organization runs or even that an industry runs, right? And when we give people the opportunity to solve these types of problems on their own, we just see so much innovation, so much excitement, and ultimately it translates to benefits for all of us across the board. Just to give you an example, when we are doing our programs within HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, each student has a capstone project that's a direct problem that they've identified they want to solve. And we've seen our students be able to identify, you know, what are comorbidities across different diseases based on um, different pills that they've been taking, medications. We've had one of our students who took a 40-hour manual task of sorting through grant applications and translating it into a 15-minute task using uh, text mining to automatically sort them. And you're looking at that level, they're working hard to serve their constituents better. And I'm just seeing so much that we can unlock when we give people the right tools. Yeah, I completely agree there. You know, uh, both of us being in the education space, I also run some of our data science for executive and manager workshops. And I will say that for companies that go for these executive workshops to help their managers and their executives get aligned for the buy-in and for the vision and the communication of data literacy, it's at least a 10 to 1 success rate for these companies versus the others. I mean, it's, it's night and day. So I think it's critical. You know, if you are definitely an executive or leader listening here on the show today, definitely consider one of those for your departments to to gain some of that knowledge to lead with a good data strategy. You know, tying all this in together, Mirav, we've talked about so many topics today around successfully transforming for the next wave of the workforce, accelerating the data economy. What's a call to action that you have for our listeners today? I think you know, first call to action, if you are in a company and you are anticipating these transitions, of course, you can always reach out to me, marav at datasociety.com. You know, I'm happy to answer any questions that you have, happy to help. I think the other call to action is to take an inventory of where you are currently, right? So assess what data tools do you have? How is your data stored? How is it stored securely? And then thinking through your workforce, who are your powerhouses? Who are your people that really are leveraging data and how well is it understood in terms of data governance and data policies. So trying to take stock and inventory and understanding what your goals are. So it's very difficult to say, okay, by this time next year, everything's going to be running on AI and I'm only going to have people that understand how to use Python to build neural networks, right? That's a huge, huge lift if you're going without a database that's established 
that's concrete, right? So I think you really have to take it in phases. And the first phase is to assess where you are and then see who else on your leadership team you can get for buy-in for this type of a transformation. And I'm sure you've seen this as well in your work, but anytime that you can highlight a successful project that's used data. So if you're working on a team that used data to do something awesome, shout it from the rooftops in your company that typically gets a lot of traction. It's a great way to show recognition to the people who are using these types of skills and show other people that are working around them, hey, maybe I can use data too to solve this other problem that I'm having. So really making it a shared workspace for success is a great way to do it. And you know, and if you're an individual, I absolutely think you should take a look at what resources are available to you, especially if you are currently furloughed and you're thinking about what's the next stage for you. Just like learning a new language, there's not a downside to learning a bit of programming, learning a little bit more about data, because it will always come in handy. Their data is now just used everywhere. So really taking those first steps, I think is a great idea. Murav Yurav Lifker, CEO and co-founder of Data Society. Thank you for joining us on Humane. Thank you very much, David. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. What do you think? Did the show measure up to your thoughts on artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education? Listeners, I want to hear from you so that I can offer you the most relevant, trend-setting, and educational content on the market. You can reach me directly by email at david at humanepodcast.com. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe, and leave a review on your preferred podcasting app, and tune in to more episodes of Humane. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.